I'm Mia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform, especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. My poor Nellie Gray, they have taken you away, and I'll never see my darling anymore. I am sitting by the river, and I'm weeping all the day, for you're gone from the old Kentucky shore. Oh, my poor sung by the Mills Brothers. The song was originally written by composer, educator, pastor, and abolitionist Benjamin R. Hanby in 1856. His home was a station on the Underground Railroad. The song is said to be based on the story of a slave who was sold away from her family and home. One version of folklore suggests the song was inspired by a slave named Joseph Selby who stopped at the Hanby home and Underground Railroad station in Westerville, Ohio on his way to Canada. He hoped to earn enough money there to buy the freedom of his love, an enslaved woman named Nellie Gray. The song was popular in the North prior to and during the Civil War. legislators disenfranchised black male New Yorkers in 1821, it left African Americans with little recourse to improve their lot in life, further solidifying their position on the bottom of the proverbial totem pole. According to a report by the nonprofit group, the Brennan Center, quote, but Jim Crow was not confined to the South. He made his home in northern states as well, perhaps most notably in New York. Starting in the 18th century, the history of New York's election laws follows this national narrative. In fact, New York was the only state in the country to require Blacks, and only Blacks, to own real property in order to qualify to vote. New York's criminal disenfranchisement provisions, like those deployed in the South, were part of a concerted effort to exclude African Americans from participating in the political process. 
As African-Americans gained freedom with the gradual end of slavery, New York's voting qualifications, including criminal disenfranchisement laws, became increasingly more restrictive. A careful reading of New York's constitutional history reveals that at the very time that the 14th and 15th Amendments forced the state to remove its nefarious property requirements for African-American voters, New York changed its law from allowing to requiring the disenfranchisement of those convicted of infamous crimes." End quote. But the settlement of Weeksville, located in Brooklyn, was a beacon of hope at a time in pre-Civil War New York when Blacks had suffered major legislative and legal setbacks. Weeksville was founded in the early 19th century by free African Americans. It offered Blacks a place to live where they could enjoy community, relative freedom and safety, economic opportunity, a place to worship where children could learn, and unlike many other places at the time, a place where people of African descent could dare to pursue lofty ideals of prosperity and happiness. Weeksville attracted people from both the North and the South and even the Caribbean. Rather than being resigned to defeat, free Blacks in early 19th century Brooklyn decided to seize upon what freedoms they did have. Several years after New York State abolished slavery in 1827, Black men of means, including Black men in Brooklyn, began buying property as part of the trend of land speculations across the nation. Weeksville was named after James Weeks, an African-American longshoreman from Virginia. In 1838, Weeks bought a plot of land in the Ninth Ward of Central Brooklyn from Henry C. Thompson, a free African-American land investor and leader in the abolitionist movement who had previously purchased the property from the wealthy Lefferts family. By the 1850s, Weeksville had more than 550 Black residents, making it the second largest free Black community in antebellum America. Weeksville also offered Blacks political and economic opportunities through land ownership. At the time, Black men in the state had to own at least $250 worth of land in order to vote. While the law effectively stripped most Black men of the right to vote, a number of Black men in Weeksville were able to cast their ballots in elections. In fact, the community had one of the highest property and business ownership rates for any Black community in the nation at the time. It had its own churches, including the Berean Missionary Baptist Church and Bethel Tabernacle African Methodist Episcopal Church. It had a school, Colored School Number 2, which was the first school in the country to integrate students and staff. Weeksville had one of the first African-American newspapers, the Freedmen's Torchlight, which served as a textbook somewhat to newly freed African-Americans learning to read by publishing lessons on the alphabet, English, and math. Weeksville was also known to be a major station along the Underground Railroad. At its height, about 700 families called Weeksville home, including some notable Black leaders. Weeksville resident Dr. Susan Smith McKenney Stewart was the first African-American woman physician in the state. Her sister, Sarah Smith Garnett, was the first Black woman principal in New York City and would help found the Equal Suffrage League of Brooklyn, the first suffrage organization for Black women. I spoke to Alan Hillary, who's a data scientist and lecturer at the Macaulay Research Assistant Program at the City College of New York, or CUNY, about the history of Weeksville and his efforts to revive Weeksville through his research. prefer me to call you Professor Hillary Allen. Allen is fine. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. Just tell me a little bit about your background. You're a data scientist. What does that mean? And then how does that contribute to the mission of your life? <laughs> yes. So yes, I have a background in engineering. I was an engineer. I transitioned into doing more what I call data sleuthing, also database reporting, supporting marketing and sales teams that progressively led to doing more analytics, web analytics. And I spent the majority of my career, 20, about 20 years, doing that type of work. Recently, I would say about five years ago, I transitioned from a corporate career and I was at a place in my career where I wanted to give back. I was writing a lot about 
the importance of data literacy, the importance of it in business, the importance of it as a tool for social mobility, and how every career vertical is going to have data to be a part of it. And that would be the best or the most efficient way to continue to thrive or to move up in your career vertical. It was Black History Month, and I was looking to write an article at the intersection of that and data. And that's where I was told or recommended to look into W.E.B. Du Bois. And most of us know him as civil rights activist, a prolific author, but I didn't realize he had designed data visualizations for a team of sociologists at Atlanta University. And so that put me on this whole journey of just looking at the way he did his visualizations for a lot of us who are in the space. We are amazed at the fact that they're hand-drawn, they're poster-sized, his use of color and his use of lettering. I call it a masterclass in data visualizations because like everything that you're taught in this space, he's just like really maximizing it. And, and it was just really awesome to learn his technique and just to study it. And that led to a progression of just wanting to be at a place at the intersection of data and social justice. And for me, being in a data space, having Du Bois make that contribution, it needed to be shared. And also, when it came to looking at different communities, the same thing. So let's talk about one of those communities. Let's talk about Weeksville. Your work centers on Seneca Village and Weeksville right now. And I'd really love to dig into this. One of the reasons is because, as you've probably also learned doing this work, Unfortunately, when marginalized people are not the creators of their own narratives, a lot of their history and information either gets buried or lost or isn't even recorded in the first place. We do have some records and some physical vestiges of Weeksville because there are four homes, the Hunterfly homes that remain in Brooklyn where Weeksville once was. So I wonder what your work tells you and your colleagues about the founders of Weeksville, how they work cooperatively to build the community and institutions in it, and who were some of these people? Or you mentioned landowners. Were they all landowners? Were some of them renters? Were some of them former slaves? Were some of them born free? I would say all the above first in terms of Black wealth and people owning and people, the first doctor, first African-American doctor was there. Her name is Susan Smith McKinney. But what I will say, just to go back, let's take a step back. What we learned is that Weeksville started around 1839. Brooklyn had been booming. The population had been growing. I think it had gotten to about 40,000 residents. And to answer your question again, this included Black people who were free as well, who had been informally enslaved. Emancipation was beginning to continue to roll off. And one of the biggest, I guess, purchases of land was by a person of the name of Henry C. Thompson. So he had purchased 32 lots in 1838. And then a year later, he sold two of those lots at Dean Street and Troy Avenue. And he sold that to James Weeks. I guess that's where we get the name Weeksville from. And James Weeks had been, um, he was from Virginia. He was a dock worker and he was a freed slave. That's what some of the research says. And Weeksville, during that evolution, it just became a community of of African-Americans who owned the property and they had their own schools. There was their own churches, their businesses. There was even a baseball team and they even had their own newspaper. I mean, this was a time where you did have a lot of black newspapers that was coming up. And unfortunately, most of them are gone now. But I would say that from 1838, that's where you had this enclave that was booming, that was coming together. Then in 1841, that was the last year slaves could be brought to New York by an out-of-state owner. By the time of 1855, Weeksville itself had about 531 residents. So that was more than Seneca Village had. I think Seneca Village had only reached about 200, a little bit over 200. But Weeksville had a 531. And most of the houses were wood frame houses, like what we do see from the Hunter Fly houses. And yes, at that intersection of time, unfortunately, later on, Weeksville would welcome Black New Yorkers who were fleeing another 
protagonist, the draft riots in 1863, but the community had grown quickly. There were a lot of financially self-sufficient people there, and it had the highest number of Black-owned businesses and properties at its time. So that's definitely- That's amazing. I didn't know that last part. And so yet a lot of sources have cited that it definitely had been one of the highest number of Black-owned businesses and properties. And so, you know, for people who don't know, this was before the Brooklyn Bridge was built. So it really wasn't easy to get to from Manhattan, but that also made it a more desirable area for Black folks who wanted to find a haven where they didn't have to worry about sudden violence like those who were living in Manhattan, who perhaps were around at the time of the 1834 riot, and then later the 1863 draft riots. And as you mentioned, many African-Americans who were in Manhattan during the time of the draft riots did flee to Weeksville. And what a journey it must have been, because again, there was no bridge. They could just walk across. Right. Yeah. And thank you for reminding me of that, because you're right. It's one of those things that, yes, but you just didn't think about it because you're so used to it. But yes, that is so true. Before we started this interview, we were talking about how Black people in New York, and especially what we know today as New York City, during the, the 19th century, were not all what you would typically think of as Black. The diaspora was even widespread back then. And so you had the presence of people of African descent in New York City, but then you had people of African descent from other parts of the world, as you mentioned, the Caribbean or Africa. And you also had people of African descent who were of mixed race as well, who also were not from North America. So I wonder, were you able to discover where a lot of these residents came from or the demographics? And of course, I know that's asking a lot all these many years later, but I just wonder what you were able to glean about the demographics of Weeksville. Sure. We were able to glean that to your point, that there was definitely Black people who had migrated from the U.S. South, but they were also from the Caribbean, more specifically from Jamaica, for example, Haiti, as you mentioned. Even back then, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing that you were able to discover that. Yeah, shout out to Erica Budson. <laughs> I remember having a conversation because Erica had looked through like a lot of the Black periodicals. And again, Erica's heritage being Jamaican, she knows this from hearing stories firsthand, but also just looking through the Black newspapers and there was certain descriptions. I forget either it was a job posting or people talking about nurses or service workers, but she was able to piece this together between the combination of just looking through periodicals at that time and also just from her family lineage. And for people who aren't familiar, just who is Erica Buddington? What does she do? Oh, right. So Erica Buddington, she's chief curriculum officer of Langston League. So she writes curriculums at the intersection of Black history and pop culture. But when she's not doing that, she's educating all of us over Twitter on New York City at the intersection of Black history. So she puts out a lot of threads on these time periods and she will go to these places and then do a video or just Twitter threads of like what was going on at these times as she's standing in certain areas, especially if she does a lot in Brooklyn, that's where she lives. And so she does a lot of that. She's done some in Queens then. So yeah, she's just an awesome person to talk about history <laughs> with. And yeah. so I've been able to have her consult just to kind of bounce ideas off. Yeah. And I'm so grateful too, because I had no idea there were that many various people from different areas of the world living in Weeksville at that time. Yeah, it's not widespread. Interesting. So also, what has your research told you about some of the key institutions that were really integral to holding Weeksville together, the fabric of 
the community together, the churches, mutual aid, organizations and societies, schools, social clubs, et cetera. One of the underlying things that I feel can be a really good substory in general or narrative is the fact that in these situations, women were coming up to the North for opportunities and they would have to bring their children with them. And the men can't always be there because they would have to go to other areas for opportunities for work. And so because of that, while women were out working, they needed childcare. And so there were a lot of institutions, places for people to either have their children taken care of while they were at work. Colored Orphans Asylum was definitely one of the places. But to your point, there was definitely the Black church was very prominent in helping people and building schools because just having the opportunity to also educate these children who were not with their moms all the time. And that social clubs as well, I think her name was Elizabeth Glooster. Yes, Elizabeth Glooster. She was one of the wealthiest Black women in America at the time. And she was very instrumental with having a a social club. I think it was the Remsen House. And also her husband was a minister. Um, He founded the Presbyterian Church. So that was the way that, again, going back to that place of community and having that sense of belonging, was either through the church or various social clubs that these residents had. And it was places also for prominent civil rights activists to also speak. These clubs were also platforms and churches also for various abolitionists, various civil rights activists to hold meetings and to just help empower people at the time or just to continue with the progress, different business owners. And so these networks definitely played a very huge part in fabric of these communities. We talked about kind of what made Weeksville desirable for Blacks and African Americans and people of color. I really would love to hear from you what your research told you about how the 1863 draft riots impacted the makeup of Weeksville. We know that Black people in Manhattan, many of them, they fled to Weeksville, they fled to Staten Island, they fled to New Jersey, some of them. They did go to many places, but Weeksville was one of them. And just explain the role Weeksville played as sort of a a haven for people looking for refuge. Sure. So as you mentioned, Brooklyn at that time was definitely It wasn't uncharted territory because it had been booming, but at the same time, it was a place, it was a haven, a refuge for Blacks who were fleeing from draft riots because that was a very violent altercation. And you had, you had Weeks, James Weeks, who had purchased this land. He was looking to develop it and you had people who were moving And so it served as a haven away from Manhattan because Manhattan had gotten very violent for Blacks. It was also running out of room because there was a lot of people who were making sure Black people couldn't rent homes or have homes. And people, again, like with Seneca Village, they wanted home ownership because, again, you had that power to vote or you had that power to elevate yourself. So there wasn't many places of opportunities, developed opportunities for Black people to live. And so Weeksville was one of those places because by this time, when you're having that migration, even though eventually Seneca Village had been displaced. And so Weeksville had become more and more the place at the time to move to and to not only just survive, it was to thrive. You can have that home ownership, you can be around other people, other business minded people, and there's strength in numbers. And so it was again, one of those enclaves, one of those places that people can begin to build a life. And when we all take a step back and realize there wasn't that much freedom for Black Americans or Black people to have that. A lot of places where you were not allowed or you would have felt unwelcomed. (laughs) And also to have that combination of ownership and affordable 
homeownership. And even education was also very central to the identity of the community. That's correct. Also, the terms of availabilities for schools. Yes. I want to know if you could just briefly explain what the Mapping Communities Project is. It's relatively new. Is that correct? Yes, it's relatively new. It's in the works. Our vision is to be a series, but right now, Mapping Communities is looking at historically Black neighborhoods, and the idea is to help the reader understand the sense of community, because Du Bois was definitely very, now it was one of his central topics when he did the Philadelphia Negro, but it's to really give people a history of New York through communities, and communities that were forgotten, and the overarching map is kind of like the Marvel MCU in the universe, but it's like they all have their own standalone stories of people who came together due to whatever historical points in time. But when you weave all the communities together, there is this underlying theme that every time the Black community has started to establish a community, a thriving community, it has been displaced even due to racial violence, even due to racial violence or gentrification, urban renewal, however you want to name it. There's also we're just throwing a highway in the middle of the entire thing. Yes. And so when you really map it out, no pun intended, you step back, you can see a migratory pattern of how black people they were in downtown Manhattan and they eventually had to either move up north as far as Manhattan is concerned or out east as far as going to maybe Brooklyn at the time and just having to start over. Just explain kind of what tools and resources as a data scientist you use to do this work. A lot of people aren't even familiar with the term. Sure. To do a lot of this work, we used Excel, we used Tableau. So Tableau is a data visualization tool. One of my colleagues from the Du Bois Challenge, Anthony Stark, shout out to him. He has developed his own tool where he has visualized all of Du Bois' work. And he partnered with us on this project to do a lot of the mapping for us. So we did a lot of mapping, recreated some of Du Bois's visualizations. So now Du Bois's visualizations is using data from Atlanta. So we use some of those visualizations using data from New York. And given the time period, most of the data that we were able to use was census data. And so Du Bois also used census data, but he also did surveys. Some of his visualizations talk about the different occupations that Black households had or the different income expenditures. We did not have the time or the bandwidth to do that. I don't even know how. I guess we'd have to do some heavy, you know, deeper research. Most of our data is census data, and it's looking at the population, and we can see the population change of the Black population in New York City versus the white population, or just looking at that growth over time from the late 1800s to 1920. And it was increasing over time as far as New York City was concerned. And so just being able to analyze that, being inspired by Du Bois's visualizations, as well as recreating or looking at old maps, being able to get that data, being able to analyze it. Part of this project is also telling a story, walking people through a timeline, trying to get people to, as they read the narrative, they can have a vision in their head of what this looked like, the sense of community, the importance. We kind of run through the fact that emancipation did not happen overnight, and it didn't happen at the same time. There was emancipation in New York State versus other places. doesn't mean other places were emancipated yet. Another thing that we look at, and we want to look at the people, one of the things that I'm learning and most people may not know is that it just wasn't, for example, Black people from the South. There are also Black people from the Caribbean that was coming into New York at this time. And that was just something that was... Yes, and and even Haiti, because after the revolution, Black people and white people 
some of them left and actually a lot of white people came this way to kind of flee after Haitians were able to overtake the French. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And and actually in some of the books, including In the Shadows of Slavery by Leslie Harris, she also talks about how the concentration of African-Americans was not strictly African-American people. They were people from the Caribbean, even from Africa. And then there were mixed race people more than we would assume for that period in time who were also not necessarily from North America, maybe had traveled here. The first Black people to own land in New York, as you probably know, they were among the first who were brought here, but they weren't all of African descent solely. Right. Um, Yeah. And that was such a wonderful lesson to learn and because I can speak for me but I can also speak for my classes in high school and stuff you weren't really taught that it's just been eye-opening and that's what this whole thing has been about just really mapping communities on so many different levels and understanding the people that were here and the different nuances that took place I love it century, the land around Weeksville continued to be developed. The street grid reached further east and often ran right through existing Weeksville infrastructure. Its cemetery was destroyed to make room for the Eastern Parkway. The original wood homes were replaced by brick row houses. Over time, Brooklyn slowly swallowed Weeksville whole. Residents had little choice but to leave, and eventually the community disappeared. Today, unfortunately, only several original wood frame cottages known as the historic Hunterfly Road houses are the only remaining signs of Weeksville. For decades, it seemed as if this pre-Civil War enclave had never existed until several faculty members from Pratt Institute who were doing research in the area stumbled upon the homes in the 1960s, leading to a half century of work to save the homes, renovate them, and create a facility dedicated to Weeksville's heritage. That facility is now the Weeksville Heritage Center. I spoke to a few professors who teach at Pratt Institute today about the school's connection to Weeksville, why the antebellum enclave was nearly forgotten by the larger community, as well as a project they created that uses archival interviews, maps, and photographs to make sure future generations can maintain a connection to Weeksville's heritage. yourselves and tell me what it is you do. I'm Jeffrey Hogreef and I'm a professor of humanities and media studies at Pratt Institute and I teach thematic classes in philosophy and literature and I teach in the architecture school as well. I teach a studio class for fourth year students. I teach in the landscape architecture program and I've been teaching in the architecture program for 20 years at Pratt. And I came to Pratt to develop the Architecture Writing Program, which is a cross-linked integrated writing program in the first and fifth year of undergraduate architecture. So. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And Professor Ruff? Yes, my name is Scott Ruff. I'm a adjunct associate professor of architecture at Pratt Institute. I currently teach in the undergraduate program teach design studio primarily, along with a series of seminars that deal with cultural studies and also theory, architectural theory. I previously, before moving to New York in 2016, 
I did work at Tulane University and where I engaged also in teaching through design build and community engagement, social engagement work through architecture. And I continue that social engagement work here and work that we're continuing here with Weeksville with the hopes of moving towards design build and new structures in the area. So Professor Hogreef, I'll just start with you since you introduced yourself first. Could you just explain what the connection is between Pratt Institute and I guess the rediscovery of Weeksville and its housing stock in the 1960s? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, Weeksville was a flourishing 19th century African-American self-supporting community. And by the end of the 20th century or middle of the 20th century, it had pretty much dissolved into just a few scattered houses in what was once about eight to 10 square block area. And uh, their Pratt faculty were doing research in the area through the Central Brooklyn College, which was then operating and offering classes and stumbled across the houses. The people living in them knew that they were Weeksville houses, but the population at large didn't know about Weeksville. In fact, there is very little known about Weeksville and it disappeared to the extent that it wasn't really well known. And they began to document the houses, which then led to a 40 or 50 year period of renovating the houses, raising money, and finally in 2014, the opening of the Weeksville Heritage Center. That's really interesting to me. And the fact that people living there knew where those houses came from, but the wider community didn't is also really interesting. Professor Ruff, could you explain how the Pratt-Weeksville Archive Oral History and Critical Ethnography project came to be? And when you say archive in that title, could you just explain what that means? Well, the Pratt-Weeksville Archive and Ethnography came to be from our research that Jeffrey and I were conducting during our writing of the book in search of African-American space. And while we were researching that book, we learned more about Weeksville. We already knew about it a little bit, but again, through our continued kind of in-depth study, we started to understand that Weeksville's significance in the central Brooklyn area and also its African-American kind of roots as we engaged the Weeksville Heritage Center more frequently During that time, we actually even spent three chapters within our nine-chapter book on Weeksville um, at some level. So then launched a kind of question as to what was Weeksville today and the kind of idea of trying to understand, well, what do the people who currently live here know about the place? What is it that they hope the place to become? What do they aspire for the place to be? And how do they feel in in the location that they live in today? And so that really spurred the kind of conversation that we were having with the ethnographic interviews that we conducted. And that was done in conjunction with the Weeksville Heritage Center as well. And this is what became our kind of core of an idea of an archive. And our primary idea is that the archive is something for the future, that we are providing information for people 50 to 100 years from now as to what is this place called Weeksville in the 2020s, and that we won't have to necessarily go through this kind of guessing game and archival and archaeological kind of work that we have to do today. And to also collect whatever other information does exist and to find new information from the past to inform the archive. But it's really a living archive that at its core are these types of interviews that look at the people who are currently living there and for people who might even have lived there in a near past, but are still invested in the place. Hmm. Yes, it's it's our belief that 19th century self-supporting Black communities can provide a model for 21st century communities. There were a number of self-supporting communities 
from the 1820s through the 19th century, black communities. And the most famous one was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but there were many others throughout the U.S. and many in New York State. Weeksville was the second largest of all these communities, and they flourished, and then they died at the end of the 19th century with the rise in anti-Black racism in the U.S. And so the communities themselves posed a threat to the white supremacists because they were so successful in supporting themselves. And we're very interested in the demise of Weeksville, and it remains largely a mystery still. We haven't been able to piece together enough of the evidence as to what happened that led to its demise to have even a theory, but we suspect that it was rising anti-Black racism in central Brooklyn at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. So that's something we're really looking forward to. We don't even know the exact extent of Weeksville at this time. So we have a lot of questions that we keep pursuing, but we have been able to interview people who actually knew people who were descended from the Weeksville, and, and they've been really shedding light on a lot of things. And we've been using photographs to recreate what happened in the 20th century, and then Sanborn maps to look at the way it's appearing and not appearing on the map. So our archiving project involves not only the interviews, but the maps and the photographs as well. I agree with you about many of these Black communities and the fact that many people don't even know that they existed. And I think part of the reason they would spring up and then just disappear off maps or devolve into not really self-sustaining communities anymore, but places where people experienced even more hardship is because community and specifically self-sustaining Black communities, from what I've gathered, whether it's in the Midwest, whether it's in the Northeast or the South, it just seems like this was a form of resistance, a way to resist white supremacy and all the social mechanisms that supported it. Mm -hmm. And without saying, you can do whatever you want or whatever you think you can do to me, but I'm still standing, I'm still here, and I'm able to create a safe place for myself and my family and my community. And people who supported white supremacy just didn't like that. And so there were just so many ways that these communities were either extinguished, dissolved, or just devolved into places of poverty in some cases, because some of them still do exist, but I'm not sure of any that are existing in the relatively prosperous way that they may have existed a hundred or more years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, one of the speculations, which is actually just a history of, of Brooklyn, is the large influx of immigrants into the city of New York and the greater New York area and the rapid growth of Brooklyn itself which then really did begin to push many of the African-American settlers out of their homes, just out of just sheer capitalist gain, right? And so that's, that's one of the primary things that occurred that really made it disappear, right? And many of those policies, of course, as we do know, redlining was present and those things. And so it made property cheaper at a certain level. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, where do you move? Can't live near here. And so all of those types of practices led to the kind of demise of Weeksville. But I do think that it is somewhat of a unique condition because of it being in the Northeast, in New York City in particular, it was something different than, let's say, in Southern towns where you know, there wasn't enough industry or jobs to go around in an area, and therefore that led to a demise. Here, there were plenty of jobs and things of that nature, but it was this huge influx of immigration from Europe in particular that moved out the African-American settlement. What other historical resources have helped reveal previously unknown facts and information about Weeksville, and how have you and your students incorporated them into this project that you've created? Right. 
So the project that we've created has multiple prongs to it. One is the studio that we currently are teaching in the design studio and architecture school. Connecting to the archive has been one of the working titles of that. The other is our Weeksville research, which is the ethnography in particular, and also the spatial mapping. And through the ethnography, we've been able to begin a process of mapping, let's say, 1950s to the 1970s Weeksville from the stories mm-hmm. of those who lived during that time. And so it's our current work to include that information, such as extinct parades that may have gone on and events that would go on throughout the community. Again, this is something that is not quite stated in texts or anything like that. You can just start to hear from anecdotal stories from many of these people. They begin to speak of certain locations that they were familiar with. One location where one of the people we interviewed, her husband, he was a cleaner. He owned a dry cleaners. And again, African-American person owning dry cleaners, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, this is something that doesn't necessarily go on today. Seems as if it's some part of history that's erased. And so the ethnography is probably our hugest source of new information. We still find it to be probably the most valuable source because it hasn't necessarily been recorded as of yet. Beyond that, again, the Weeksville Heritage Center and also the Brooklyn Library, those are other two major sources of information. And we also have a wealth of information from Ron Schiffman, who is also with us. And every time we sit with him, at least every time I sit with him, I just hear stories beyond stories about Brooklyn and Weeksville and the relationship. Yes, Ron was part of the 1960s dig, and he's a professor emerita at Pratt. So he's been an invaluable resource for us because he was actually there when the houses were excavated and the archaeological dig took place with local community members. We've been working with local churches as well for our archive, churches that have a history with Weeksville, and those churches have archives themselves of their members, the addresses for the members, and that's been invaluable to us. The archive, the oral history, the history of Weeksville, our limited experience in the local schools have taught us that most students in the Weeksville area aren't even aware of Weeksville or that it existed and the importance of it. The original impulse for Weeksville in the 1960s arose out of the Pan-African Black is Beautiful movement in the 60s, when people became very proud of, rightly so, of their heritage. And so we're interested in continuing to tap into that spirit in our work. Right. And the archive, especially the video recording of histories, is valuable to our studio, our design studio, in a way that offers our students an insight into a history of a community and also into a culture of a people that they don't oftentimes get. It's one thing to have a kind of one-on-one with one or two people, but the more people we interview, the more we can show our students of who are the people that live in the place we're going to ask you to design a project in, right? So what so, are they designing? You say your design studio. So what are the students designing? Students are designing based on their research and also based upon interviews and listening to the archive interviews. The students develop series of possible futures or, or possible alternate alternate histories that could have been if we were focused more on African-American culture as an interest, right? And so the projects are not necessarily housing, which is a common project that happens within African-American neighborhoods and things of that nature. So there are usually civic scale or civic types of projects that provide for a kind of gathering of the public, places for the public to go, which when I was growing up, There were places for African-Americans between the ages of 15 to 30 to go, whereas today, none. 
not so much. And so we ask our students to develop projects along those lines. And so they, they operate from political types of centers to some types of event entertainment venues to park spaces to, I would even say, businesses. So we've had some develop hair salons in conjunction with public space. And how is it that these spaces become business incubators and things of that nature? It's really a kind of rich program that we ask students to invent based upon their research. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And how Black people back then took up space and what that looked like, which is something that we don't know enough about. And I know, Professor Ruff, you have to jump off. So I thank you. But I just wanted to say it's interesting because you mentioned that you're still trying to understand what happened to Weeksville, the demise of Weeksville. And just looking at some of the antebellum Black communities or African-American communities that existed in New York, that seems to be the case for many of them. When you look at Seneca Village, when you look at the Westchester, which was in what we know today as the Bronx, they virtually disappeared. When you look at Newtown in Queens, I mean, it's nothing is left, right? So that seems to be a common theme as well with some of these communities. Yes. And one of the things that we are trying to do, so another aspect of what we have done with Weeksville information is we have worked with high school students. As we said before, many of these students who live in the area don't know the history of Weeksville. They haven't even been to the Weeksville Heritage Center, which exists there. And one of the hopes for the high school engagement is to have the students speculate on what would it mean to move back to Weeksville or after college. Right. So as opposed to a place that you're just renting or a place that you are looking to get away from and get out of, what if this is a great place to live in which it is? And again, to aspire and to propose projects that might say, I would like to have a place like that. I might like to have a place to skate and then to develop with both our high school and or college students. Again, these are types of projects are college students would develop as well, might be some level of skating arena or skate park, something of that nature, and say, this would make it a nicer place for me to be as a 14, 15-year-old person, something to do after school. Professor Hogree, it's really fascinating, actually, to me, how you and Professor Ruff have combined these different fields of architecture and oral history, I wonder how you believe they complement one another and also lend themselves to the efforts of yourself and your students to really bring light to the history of Weeksville and raise awareness about it in the present day community. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a very good question. My approach to architecture is through the humanities. I am a humanities professor, and so I look at architecture as a built imagined environment, and I look at it historically through the lens of what it means to be human and what it means to occupy a building and how one might design buildings that are more sensitive to human interaction. And so the archive becomes a natural extension of it. There have been oral history, there have been projects built through oral history for years. And at this period in time, there's an increasing interest in social justice and in engaging with the real. So I think that, you know, the timing of our project is quite good. The younger students in our school coming into Pratt now as freshmen are all very excited to do oral histories and to learn more about the people who might occupy their designs. Architecture is a mathematical system that's aesthetically based and can quite often remain abstract to human interaction, as we all know from the types of buildings some of us have been asked to occupy. And so we're excited to be able to incorporate that in our design of African-American buildings that specifically address African-American and Indigenous communities. So how does an quote, active archive of oral history, 
help to thwart other modern day forces that really threaten what's left of Weeksville and perhaps even subject it to a similar fate of that that it suffered at the end of the 20th century. Well, the biggest threat today to community development is, you know, the housing market and the way the housing market operates through gentrification, neighborhood gentrification, and through also a stockpiling of houses by investors. And the oral history will enable people to have a stronger relationship with community boards that can help to stave off development in neighborhoods or encourage different kinds of development that are more responsive to the needs of the actual residents in the neighborhood. The oral history has helped us already with one of the churches that we're working with for them to imagine how their church might expand its community through central Brooklyn. And additionally, we see the oral history as a living archive that will continue indefinitely. And we've really been working with helping people and our students to learn how to archive their own families, interview their own families, the kinds of questions they could ask. We were really fortunate when we started the project to work with the Weeksville Heritage Center and Hope de Mondesere, who was the oral history historian, because he introduced us to some methods that we have incorporated. And Scott and I brought some knowledge from our previous experiences to the project as well. And so we're excited to think about that with a smartphone. You can interview your grandmother or grandfather or people around you and begin to compile stories. And so we see that as a real advantage of our project that it will live on beyond us. And additionally, we see it as a critical ethnography. So with the people that we've been interviewing in the church, we've been looking for ways to turn the interview so that they begin to interview us. So they see the interview process as something they can be involved in as well themselves. And it's not just that we're census takers gathering information from them, but we're actually co-participating in the creation of new communities with them. And we know that the inability of a lot of African-Americans during the time that Weeksville existed to create their own archives, many when Weeksville was created couldn't even read and write. And we always talk about different narratives, but if you're not controlling that narrative, then it's very easy to understand how you can be written out of history. So I think it's super important, the work you're doing, especially teaching other people in the community how important it is to create their own archives and save as much information as possible for future generations. Otherwise, it becomes even easier for these communities to just be forgotten. Yes. In our studio project, we teach students how to map central Brooklyn, to look at the GIS maps as colonial projects that are actually restricting people, and then to look at African-American practices, cultural practices, to introduce those to their maps so they see that there are actually informal mappings happening every day as people live and walk around and have their lives and go to the store and meet their neighbors and things like that. And then additionally, there's a history of displacement among Black families, devastating history of it through public housing, destruction of housing, and to actually look at that history of displacement as part of the real living condition for the Black community today and find ways to slow down and even stop it. one more possible stop along the Underground Railroad in Antebellum, New York, the town of Westchester, in what would eventually become the Bronx. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. This is super important. It really helps us get the word out about this history and all of the work we do around it.
And I'll never see my darling anymore I am sitting by the river And I'm weeping all the day For you're gone from the old Kentucky shore Oh, my poor Nellie Gray They have taken you away And I'll never see my darling anymore I am sitting by the river And I'm weeping all the day For you gone from the old Kentucky